Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So my mom, um, as she was coming out of the depression and, you know, my mom's purpose in life is to make everybody else feel incredible, right? Um, and just to like, cover everybody that she touches with this warm blanket of love. And, and she had lost that. And when she was coming out of her depression, we had moved into this new neighborhood and she was driving uh, through one of the shopping centers around and she saw this homeless black guy uh, uh, sleeping on a bench. And it was the, I think middle of January or something like that. And she ended up going back home, but couldn't sleep because it was I don't know, negative 10 degrees that night. And she went down and stayed on the bench with him that night brought him blankets and pillows and she gave him her phone number. And the next day, Charlie called and my mom came home with Charlie and Charlie ended up living with our family for over 20 years. I'm Srini Rao and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Tebow, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked about this conversation. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, I found out about your work by way of your publicist. And then uh, Alec Ross, who was recently a guest of his episode we haven't aired yet, also uh, said that you would be an amazing guest. And the moment he said that, I was like, okay, this is a no-brainer. And then when I read the book, I thought, oh my God, this is absolutely a no-brainer. This is amazing. Uh, but before we get into the book, I wanted to start by asking you, what birth order were you and what impact did that end up having on the choices you ended up making throughout your life? Yeah, so I was the first born, um, the oldest of four. And I think what's fascinating in that is that I am the only boy. And I tell the story a lot. I remember, not for the sister that's just under me, but for the other two, I remember sitting at the hospital, like fingers crossed, toes crossed, praying to whatever God I might have believed in at like four or five years old to just give me a brother. And uh, <laughs> the, thir the, the, the third baby came out and it was my amazing sister, Sophie. And then I did it again at eight years old and I'm in the hospital praying twice as hard this time. And uh, the fourth baby was my amazing sister, Celine. And so I was outnumbered from day one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my dad was uh, my dad was always busy at work. And so I 
like to a certain extent, I was left to fend for myself, you know, and this was a, the growing up, I lived in a, in a really cool neighborhood in the city of Baltimore. And, uh, you know, you just had to be home when the bell rang at dinner and we'd get kind of like lost in the woods and we run around with bikes throughout the whole neighborhood. And just, it was, uh, it, it was amazing. We'd find, you know, whatever wood we could from old construction sites and build tree houses. And there was a river that we used to build dams in. And I, uh, it was, it was amazing. But yeah, so I was the oldest of four. Wow. Uh, so several questions come from that. Usually like when you're the only boy in a family of girls that plays out in one of two ways, you're either the prince or the person who basically just takes orders from the women in your family. Yeah. Um, I, look back at that time period and I have a lot of regret, you know, um, I really intentionally distanced myself, right? My sisters weren't necessarily into the same things. I was super into sports at the time. And I got kind of caught up in my own world with my own friends. And I always wish I could get that time period back because my sisters are incredible. And I just didn't spend enough time at their level, digging into whatever it was that they were interested in. I'd say that, uh, I'd say that I'm, a mama's boy, you know, my, uh, my mom's always been my number one, yeah. uh, up until I got married, of course. And she was just, uh, she was incredible. Um, but they, uh, they, you know, the oldest is kind of the prince, especially when it's a boy and, uh, was the first born in the family and had all the benefits of that growing up. Yeah. So it's funny because you mentioned a sister and I, I have a younger sister and I remember, I think a few weeks after she was born, I asked my dad, I was like, can we return her? <laughs> yeah, not knowing that that's not how things work. And then I remember people were bringing gifts. You know, every kid goes through this like sibling envy and everybody would bring my sister gifts. And one of my parents' friends was nice enough to actually bring me some cookies. And I looked at her and said, I want the, I don't want these stupid biscuits. I want a real gift. And her parents were like, go to your room. Um, Pretty sure I've tried to return all three of my sisters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and then what's the age gap between you and your siblings, and and uh, which one are you closest to? Do you think, and why? So we're all pretty close. Um, the uh, um, there's eight years between all of us, so we're all about two plus years apart from each other. I am probably the closest to Lauren, who's two years younger than me. And she is just this beautiful, adventurous spirit, right? And that kind of mirrors my purpose in life as well. You know, what is out there? Who are these incredible people on this planet, these human beings that we're blessed to be in space with? How deeply can we listen to them? How can we find ways to walk in their shoes What's the highest mountain we can climb? What's the biggest wave we can ride? What's the most lost we can get and still somehow make our way back? And that's my sister, Lauren. Her and I have been, been on so many adventures together, many of which we almost didn't make it out of. And uh, she's, uh, she's incredible. When, when you are in Lauren's presence, you feel like you are the only person on the planet and the most important person on the planet. And she just gives you 100% of what she has at all times and it's uh she's an inspiration she's incredible and we we've we've had a blast we've had a blast together ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, you've you referenced your mom throughout the book, especially in the early chapters. And I remember uh, you mentioning that she you came, came here from France much against her parents' wishes. One thing I wonder, particularly when people are raised with parents from different cultures, is how your parents integrate aspects of both cultures, um, but also letting you, you know, kind of define your own, because I think that as an Indian American immigrant, one of the things I think about is what aspects of my culture will be lost every generation. So even I can give you the example, like my parents and I speak this language called Telugu, and it's funny, 
my sister married a Bengali guy and it was kind of like, okay, are they, are they, when they have kids, are those kids going to speak Telugu? And now me and my sister, like our parents will talk to us in Telugu. We reply in English, even though we can speak it fluently. And it's like, okay, if language is the first thing to go, what else is going to go? So how did your mom preserve aspects of her culture uh, in the process of raising you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that for, you know, for sure the language piece, right? So she was 20 when she married my dad and my dad was busy at work and she didn't speak very much English at all when they first got married. And so I was the only one in the home and it was 100% French to me. And she dropped me off at kindergarten. I think I was four years old at the time. And I didn't speak a word of English to the point that my grandparents on my dad's side had come back and had a come over and had a very serious sit down dinner with both my parents saying they were worried about my future, that I was never going to be able to speak English. And what kind of way to raise a child was this? And, you know, for within two months of uh, being in uh, kindergarten, I was fluent in both English and French. I was probably the, the little weird kid on the playground running around speaking both languages but I think that was the the main piece of the um, of the French culture that she tried to bring over. You know, my my grandparents on the French side lived on this farm about an hour outside of Paris, and I remember that travel was always really important to my mom and my dad. You know, we never really got gifts for the holidays and stuff like that. It was, it was the, our gift was always travel. And that was really important to my mom that we were raised understanding that this world is an enormous, inspiring place full of incredible people. And our gift was to be able to experience that. And so from a very young age, and there's a lot of privilege in this statement, but you know, we were gifted the ability to go to spend the summers on that farm in France. And it was incredible. Srini, the, had 20 cousins from really from all over the world. They'd come from Argentina and all corners of France, and we'd come from the United States. And from what I remember, we would just get dropped off. I don't even know if our parents were around. And it was this lawless adventure. Um, French countryside, like looking for snails in the woods, fishing, milking cows. When my grandmother was going to make eggs or make dinner and she needed chickens, we'd go down to the farm and pick chickens, cut their heads off and or the the farm lady would cut their heads off. We'd bring them back and pull their feathers out. And that was a really neat part of the culture was this like melting pot of oh, people from all over and just getting to experience that. And we had cousins from Italy too. And I, uh, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for my mom for a number of reasons, countless things. But the the one that really sticks out was the gift of travel um, the gift of curiosity, um, and the, the, the gift of, of compassion and always really wanting to listen. Yeah. So one final question about your, your siblings, and this is something I'm always curious about when people are the older of the, of the two a group of siblings, cause I am as well. Did your siblings get away with murder in comparison to you? And did the way that your parents raised them in terms of you know, giving them advice about how to make their way in the world change at, with each sibling? I'd say it was the other way around. I'd say that I got away with murder and that as a result of the incredible amount of poor decisions and mistakes that I made growing up, my sisters were incredible kids. You know, if I did everything wrong and if I messed everything up, they took notes 
And I don't think it was my parents. <laughs> I don't think it was my parents whispering in their ear saying, don't fuck up like Tebow. Yeah. I think it was more of this, them observing and, uh, and watching and realizing that my way of doing it in my adolescent years was probably not the right way. Yeah. Well, speaking of your adolescent years, this was something that really stood out to me in the book. You say, my mom was my number one. Now she appeared to be gone, an unrecognizable shell of her former self. I couldn't handle it, so I turned away from it all. As I prepared to turn 13, I simply hid from the reality of my family's problems. I was in denial. To me, we were still the perfect family, and I couldn't admit to myself or to anyone else that we were still struggling. And I think that you know this conversation about mental health is one that we often avoid. I mean, I come from a culture where we don't talk about this. It's highly stigmatized. I think that it's only become acceptable to go to therapy pretty much in in my generation. But it's one of those things that we've swept under the rug for generations. But as a 13-year-old kid, how do you process and deal with that kind of, you know, magnitude of of problem? Not well. Yeah. Um, You know, I, uh, I didn't know this feeling that was growing inside of me, right? For the first 13 years of my life, my family and I were invincible. You know, we were the, we were the model family, as I say in in, in the book, at least that's, that's how the outside world looked at us. And I wasn't prepared for it. You know, my mom had gone into a, a really deep depression to totally out of the blue, at least from my perspective at 13 years old, um, and was, uh, institutionalized and hospitalized, and I literally didn't recognize her. And as I said, she was my number one. And and I couldn't comprehend what was happening. And, you know, I, you know, that's a tricky age to begin with, um, to temporarily lose your mom, not sure if you'll ever get her back, um, challenges it to its core. And while she would have been my rock and the one that I would lean on, and and her and I talked about everything growing up. Like she was the cool mom. We'd talk about sex and, you know, she'd give you a, a sip of champagne at dinner. That was a big thing in France and a glass of wine or something like that. And um, there was nothing off limits uh, that uh, that me and my mom wouldn't talk about. And look, my dad's incredible. One of my heroes in life and, and amazing too. And I have so much respect for him for holding us all down during those challenging times with my mom away. But... You know, I literally didn't didn't know who to turn to at, at that point. And the the things that I began to turn to were um, through my peers and the poor decisions that they were beginning to make and, you know, trying to want to fit in uh, really for the first time in my life. I'd always been this like really, really pretty confident, you know, little pure boy. And as uh, as as my mom disappeared Again, temporarily, but it was a shock in the moment. Um, I, I I turned and and went deeper into to the circle of friends I had, some of who were amazing and are today, and and some of uh, some of whom were weren't. Hmm. Wow. Well, I think that there was something that really struck me throughout the book that you alluded to numerous times throughout, which I knew I didn't want to get out of this conversation without talking about, and that was this whole concept of privilege. Uh, you know, I remember that story that your mom brings home a homeless guy who ends up living with you. And in the conclusion of it, you say this upper middle, the upper middle class bubble I grew up and never felt right to my mom. And she did all she could to make sure that my three younger sisters and I understood that the world was a vast and powerful place full of amazing people, ideas and different ways of being. Um, I think that 
to me, I realized how often we're all privilege blind. Like I grew up the son of a college professor. Like we weren't, you know, wealthy by any means, but I think we'd fall into the upper middle class bubble like yourself. And that's not really something that I was truly aware of until I talked to people like Chris Wilson, who I know wrote you a blurb for your book. But um, how do you make sure that your kids are aware of the fact that the life they're living is not normal in comparison to what a lot of people go through? And, that, and how do people develop that awareness of privilege without necessarily bringing home a homeless person to live with them? Yeah, I, th- I think I need to kind of hit on that that st- story and yeah. then, um, and that that episode for for us too. So my so my mom, um, as she was coming out of the depression, and you know my mom's purpose in life is to make everybody else feel incredible, right? Um, and just to like cover everybody that she touches with this warm blanket of love. And and she had lost that. And when she was coming out of her depression, we had moved into this new neighborhood, and she was driving. Uh, through one of the shopping centers around and she saw this homeless black guy uh, uh, sleeping on a bench. And it was, um, I think, middle of January or something like that. And she ended up going back home but couldn't sleep because it was, I don't know, negative 10 degrees that night. And she went down and stayed on the bench with him that night, brought him blankets and pillows. And she gave him her phone number. And the next day, Charlie called and my mom came home with Charlie and Charlie ended up living with our family for over 20 years. He was in his mid eighties when he came back. And it was uh, a a lot of people reference my mom and say what an incredible thing she did for Charlie. And, And while that is true, I think the biggest takeaway from uh, for me personally and for us as a family is that one, Charlie came to us at one of our most broken times and, and Charlie taught us arguably more than we could have ever taught him. And uh, his presence in our life completely uh, opened up our eyes. And one, he brought my mom back to her amazing original self. Um, and he he taught us the importance of never passing judgment and of walking in someone else's shoes and deeply listening and being compassionate around all of the decisions that we make in life. So, so Charlie was incredible. And your question around how we teach privilege is, I don't know that you can. I think that it is something that, or an understanding of privilege, I think that it's something that comes through life's experiences. You know, I'm a dad now. I've got 10-year-old and 12-year-old sons. And one of the greatest things that I've realized from my own father is that lecturing our kids and telling them how they should be or what they should think about or how should they think has the opposite effect. Our role as leaders in life and as parents and as friends and as mentors is to lead by example. And when we blur that line and we take the more dictator approach, the message gets completely lost. And I'm speaking from experience from having failed as a dad um, and succeeded as a dad. And so I think that we and, you know, especially kind of me having grown up in this upper middle class bubble and having realized the privilege that I had later in life um, and asking myself every day what I can do with that privilege to help in some small way change the way that the world turns. Um, and then how do we pass that a- along to our kids in, a, in an organic, selfless way? 
And for me, it's through lived experiences. You know, there's a chapter at the end of the book there. I think it's the epilogue where uh, on weekends I would uh, take both my kids and we put every sports ball that we had, the cross balls, the cross sticks, baseball bats, basketballs, frisbees into the back of the car. And we drive around Baltimore and we'd find a park to play in. And this was a park that um, wouldn't have been in a neighborhood that my kids would have otherwise been to. And we would park the car and we'd get out. And sometimes there'd already be kids playing in the park. And uh, oftentimes there wouldn't, we'd be the first ones there. And this, on this one particular day, got out of the car, had a basketball, the kids sprinted across the road and went to the, the nearest hoop and started shooting. And a couple of kids from the neighborhood came around and, you know, this was my cue to kind of step off to the side and just observe. And the, Two of them, uh, my two kids and the two kids from the neighborhood end up splitting up teams and played this incredibly hilarious game of basketball together that ended in roaring laughter. The kids from the community there invited my kids to go play a football game with some of their other friends. And I basically had to pull them away. And look, I, I'm really aware of even the privilege of that story to be able to choose the communities that I go into and that they go out of when I'm done when it's when it's when it's time to go home and to go back to a relatively safe safe apartment in a in a safer part of town so i i, I don't want to downplay that at all but that's been the it's been the way that we have raised our kids um is through lived experiences you know we can we can talk a little bit more about it we you know we just spent the last year and a half living in brazil where my wife lola's from and you know brazil's a third world country and we showed up there and the community that we lived in was a gated community. You know, that's what the world told us we needed to live in in Brazil to be safe. Right or wrong, I'm not sure yet. And right next to that community, they just finished building a skate park when we arrived. And the we showed up. My kids had never skateboarded before and kind of went out, went over there one night and it was full of kids skateboarding. My kids looked nothing like any other kid on in the skate park. And the kids are kind of like staring at each other for a minute. And then one of the kids from the park comes and grabs hands with one of my kids and pulls him in and asks him if he's ever skateboarded. And they had a couple extra boards. And again, I just disappeared off to the side and watched the magic happen. And it turns out that the skate park was in one of the favelas. I'm not sure if you know what a favela is. It's yeah. kind of like a, a ghetto or a shanty town. Totally. And there was one of the like largest favelas in the area. And we, we didn't even know that you know we were in it at the time. Um, it was just where the skate park happened to be. And that experience was incredible for us as a family um, and for our kids. And they ended up forming this incredibly deep bond with really everybody there, young and old. But there was, I don't know, a a crew or a tribe of 15 kids that kind of adopted us and that we adopted them, you know, most of them had no fathers and, um, and were in jail and moms weren't around. They were living with auntie or grandma and these kids like moved into our home, you know, and we helped them with school and, um, we learned from them as much as they learned from us. But it's those, it's those lived experiences for our kids that, um, you know, I talk a lot about this in the book too, of the importance of getting out of our bubbles, right? We are so 
we are so comfortable in our comfort zones and and in the bubbles that we live in that we're incapable of seeing the the real beauty of this world. And I'll I'll never say that out loud to my kids. Maybe they'll read the book one day, but will they? What they will have will be by the time they're eighteen years old, hundreds of these kinds of experiences for them to form their own opinion of what it is that they have, um, what it is they're going to do with what they have, and 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 how they're going to show up for everybody else that they're blessed to meet throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. Wow. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
Well, I'm mean, speaking of decisions that you make at 18 years old. What was your parents' advice to you in terms of making your way in the world? Because I know that you know, your path is anything but conventional. I mean, pretty much like anybody I've interviewed, it's not a sort of series of linear steps, not that anybody's life is. Uh, but talk to me about the decisions you made at that time in your life. Look, again, I think the beauty of watching my parents parent us is that there was no pressure to do anything other than what felt right in our hearts in the moment. And that is the hardest way to do it. Again, like I have struggled with that as a dad, but that to a T is how my parents raised us. They gave us incredibly long leashes to mess up on our own, to succeed on our own. They were always there if you needed to fall back on them or ask them anything. Um, but they really let us go on their own. You know, my dad grew up working for his family's real estate company, right? Again, in a bubble full of privilege in the comfort zone of the community he knew. And at no point in my life was my dad ever like, hey, you need to pull yourself together and get yourself ready to come work for the family business. He gave us the freedom, all of us, um, to explore and to chase our dreams uh, and to do whatever it was that, that that felt right in the in the moment. So, you know, I was I was a bit lost, I think, maybe for that reason. And I've held some resentment towards that approach. But as I've gotten older, I've also respected it more going into college and kind of wishing I could get those years back again. But upon graduation from college, so Srini, I kind of skipped over this in the beginning, but I, I from a very young age, I've had two burning questions inside of me, right? And they are why are we so divided as human beings? And what are the creative ways that we can bridge those divides? I had two really very significant experiences happen at 10 years old that began to grow those questions in my head and in my heart. And as the older I grew, especially growing up in Baltimore City, the more I saw the reasons that I needed to continue, not only ask those questions, but try to find solutions to them, try to find the answers to them, which by the way, is impossible. But it is those burning questions, especially from young ages, that start to develop our purpose as human beings. And so my purpose became more clear the older I got. And when I graduated from college, you know, you're faced with this decision in life. You're faced with it every day. Um, but there's a point where you start to realize that it's in front of you. And that's we have two choices. What are we going to do? Are we going to sit on the sidelines hoping that someone else does the heavy lifting or are we going to get involved? Are we going to be a part of the problem or are we going to be a part of the solution? And so with these questions of why are we so divided and how can we bridge those divides with a couple friends, I helped to launch a organization called Peace Players. And the idea was that we would go to war-torn countries, deeply divided countries, and we would use sports, in our case, basketball, to get kids from two sides of a conflict, meet each other, find common ground, and hopefully over time becoming friends. So we raised, I was 21, 22 years old at the time. We raised, I don't know, $8,000 from friends and family. Um, two friends of mine, Sean Tui and Brendan Tui. And Sean and I, Sean got, had, was over there before I was, and I met him over there and started dribbling basketballs in black townships and rural areas and in really affluent white suburbs with the idea that the kids from a young age would begin to fall in love with the sport, get drawn to it, and then begin to form friendships and find common ground. And it was a kind of incredible experience. You know, I, I, uh, Within the third, first like three or four months, we got a we were just about run out of that money and got a call from Nelson Mandela's foundation. And the call was the President Mandela is a huge believer in the power of sports to unite. And 
he loves your program and he wants to become your largest sponsor. So we went from like no credibility, not a lot of money <laughs> yeah. to President Mandela's name and recognition and money behind us. And from that moment on, Srini, like the floodgates were opened. We were invited to replicate the model over the world. Today, the programs, you know, this is just 20 years ago, this program's in over 20 countries around the world. It's worked with over 100,000 kids in some of the most in the Middle East and Northern Ireland and Cyprus and Yemen. Uh, back here in the United States at this point. And it's been been amazing to watch it grow and, you know, couldn't have come at a at a more relevant time. And kind of my personal growth and search of the answers of those two questions, my first real ability of jumping really far out of my comfort zone, you know, really bursting that bubble. Um, and the exploration to see what I was made of at the end of the day, you know, could I, could I make it somewhat on my own? And it was, uh, yeah, there's, there's hundreds of, of peace player stories, but, but an incredible experience. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wanted to bring a clip from a previous episode after you know reading about peace players and then kind of, uh, dissect this with you. Take a listen. At the age of 12, I climbed on a bus in Tel Aviv with a bunch of frightened 12-year-old Jewish Israelis. And we took the bus, and the bus with security took us all the way to Nablus, about an hour and a half. And they awaited us something like, I don't know, probably 50 Arab-Palestinian kids. And we were frightened, like so frightened. But we were encouraged to come out of the bus to come down down and to join the kids and uh, soon enough within uh, you know two hours of guidance we were beginning to draw and paint together a huge mural and then we had uh, all kinds of sweets and fun food and stuff and we had all kinds of activities and by the second day I uh, discovered that, that these Arab kids weren't about to kill me. Like, they, they really didn't want to kill me. And, uh, and that really was a meaningful experience for me. It really was a meaningful, uh, eye-opening experience for me. So I think that part of the reason I wanted to bring that back is I just, you know, it reminded me so much uh, about, uh, you know, what you talk about in terms of peace players. And it seems like, we can build these bridges between kids. And then, you know, on the flip side of that, you've got a president who's saying, let's build a wall between two cultures. Uh, how do we bring this mindset into adults? Like, why have we lost the ability to connect and find common ground with people who are different than us uh, as adults? Because I feel like, to your point, we're so divided. I mean, India is basically this place that could be an economic superpower, but they've been in the same stupid conflict for 30 years over this same religious conflict with people who are arguing over something that is a personal choice, which is religion. And I've yet to understand, you know, why we can't find this kind of common ground as adults. It's such a beautiful question. And, you know, there's a part of me that wants to say that we won't be able to and that it is up to this future generation. I, I listen to my kids talk and they speak in a completely different way as far as like an openness to everything around them than we did as kids. And so, you know, maybe the answer is that it isn't our generation that is going to be able to find that common ground. Uh, you know, I, 
our experience with the Peace Players program. That that was a beautiful clip that you just played, by the way. And it can be art and, and it can be sports and it can be theater. It can be so many different things, um, but brought uh, under the right guidance, um, uh, incredible relationships are formed. So I think that the I think that our challenge as society is that we are afraid of fear. You know, you the the word frightened came up in that clip, which is one of the things that causes us to retreat. You know what I have always believed and have always talked about is the importance as of fear as a motivator, right? As a driver, as a uh, an understanding that when it comes up, it's because we're missing something. There's something that is triggered within us in our subconscious that we are without that makes us nervous, that, 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 that gives us that sense of fear. And unfortunately, we run from it. And the lesson in all of that is that we are not to run from it. We must run towards it because within that fear is a great lesson, as you heard from that clip. Right. While I'm not sure if that young person had the option to not get off the bus, my guess is that if the event wasn't chaperoned and supervised, the 50 Israeli kids on that bus, when they realized where they were being taken, would have turned the bus around and not gotten off because that's our default setting to run from fear. And, you know, programs like the one that we just heard of in the clip and programs like Peace Players and so many others are kind of reprogramming the internal compass of this next generation where fear is not only a motivator, but one of our greatest teachers. And I, I, uh, I think that I, I, I'm an, an internal optimist. So I really do believe that, that our next generation, our generation um, has a chance to begin to change the narrative, but in a very small way. And it's our investment in that concept and philosophy that needs to be made in this next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that until uh until we've really made progress yeah so you know i think that the next part of this that really struck me is you come back from south africa and you decide to start a real estate company with your dad but i think that the parts that struck me when you started talking about this was you say that my family has been part of the real estate business in the city for generations so why have i never seen this part of baltimore why have they never taken me here why aren't they helping to build in this part of town Somewhere in that anger came the realization of where to direct it. There was something about the ownership and control of land that was contributing to holding poor communities back. In Baltimore, I was just beginning to see this separation, the abandoned houses, the collapsing infrastructure, and what happened to be a lack of resources. Yet, even though it is the most connected industry on the planet, the control of land and manipulation of it by a hand, small handful of privileged companies and countries has always been the largest divider of the human race. The real estate industry itself was born out of our desire to control land to gain power. In fact, the control can be traced back as the cause for so many major conflicts on our planet. And as I mentioned, I know that Chris Wilson uh, actually wrote one of the blurbs for your book, and I was talking to him about this. Take a listen to what he had to say. Folks like when from a grassroots level, sometimes, at least like in, in these neighborhoods, can't even comp comprehend like these policies that are put in place. You can look at something like the 1994 Crime Bill Act that was put in place and all these people started getting locked up in, in mandatory sentences for crap versus like powdered cocaine. And all these things that were put in place was deliberate. And then you can look at HUD 
with housing practices of not um, allowing folks to get home loans based on their race or just a whole bunch of stuff. And it makes a huge difference when you talk about, you know, generating wealth for community or improving stuff. And it's like all that stuff is deliberate. though. It's all on purpose. So you having, you know, been in the real estate industry, growing up in the real estate industry and, you know, actually working in the kinds of neighborhoods that Chris is talking about. I think it's one thing for us to hear that. What do we actually not understand until we see it up close? So first of all, Chris Wilson's incredible. Um, he's, a, he's a great friend um, and he is changing the narrative. And the, 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 his mission and the clarity of his purpose and his book, The Master Plan, are, are incredible. I'm glad that he was a guest of yours. I'll have to go back and listen to that episode. I think that I need to add a little bit of context for yeah. that to answer that question as well. So, you know, I, I basically, after six years of living out of a suitcase, ended up knowing that it was time to, living in a suitcase in some of the most divided countries on the planet, knowing that it was time to pick a city and settle down to it. And I unexpectedly ended up back in Baltimore. And I never thought that I'd come back here. And I found myself early one morning in my car driving south towards Baltimore City and I pulled off on the exit for North Avenue and I headed west and I pulled over at the intersection of Pennsylvania and North Avenue. For your listeners who aren't familiar with Baltimore, that is the intersection. This was 2006. That was the intersection that nine years later would be the epicenter of the Freddie Gray uprising, right? A neighborhood that in Chris Wilson's clip that you just played um, has been not only long void of economic investment, but it's been stripped of opportunity intentionally for generations, if not longer than that. And so I'm pulled over to the side of the road and I have this like kind of panic moment where, you know, this is a community that I really never spent any time in and that I'd been made to believe my whole life that I wouldn't be safe in. And the this narrative of you won't be safe didn't resonate with me anymore, right? I had heard it all over the world. I had heard it when we would go into the townships in South Africa. Um, that as a as a white guy, we should never go in. I had heard it as we went into the the West Bank in, in Palestine. Um, I had heard it in different parts of Northern Ireland and Cyprus, and and I had seen the importance of not listening to that narrative and and actually going into to these communities, but going in in a, in a in a very humble way, right? In, in a way that was prepared to listen. And so I end up getting out of my car and, and I, and I kind of start walking around that day, Srini, and I saw all of the things that society told me I'd say, right? The vacant homes, all the things Chris described, the disinvestment, the drug dealers on the corners, the liquor stores, the clients of those drug dealers nodding off at the intersections, the vacant buildings. And I just kind of kept walking and it was about five minutes in that I had that realization, two realizations, actually. One is that our country, the United States, and particularly my city of Baltimore, are more divided than these so-called war-torn countries, where I'd spent so much time for the last six years, so much time and energy trying to heal those divides. We have an inability here to have open and honest conversations with people who don't look like us about our differences, but also our similarities. And I began to see that as a ticking time bomb. And the second realization was the piece that you read from my book, which is that the real estate industry is the most powerful connected industry on the planet, but it's done more divide us than actually bring us together. And so like I had this 
kind of rage grow inside of me. Like, how have I missed this my entire life? Um, and, and then it, it kind of made my way back to my car and ended up calling my dad, inviting him out to dinner. And that was the beginning of the, the company that we had launched. And he called it a real estate company. And I guess at the, at its core, that's probably what we are. But what our intent was, was to set out to reimagine the real estate industry, right? To prove that buildings brought to life in really inclusive ways could actually empower communities and unite cities and help to launch really powerful ideas. So the further that I dove into the real estate world um, and the more I understood the importance of really reimagining it, flipping it completely upside down so that it, we were able to kind of lead with our purpose over our profit. And since then, you know, the, I've done a ton of research. I've read a lot of books. I've had tons of conversations with friends like Chris. And there is truth in everything that he said. Um, the intentional displacement, um, the redlining that took place, the, there, there's, there's so many intentional policies that held poor black communities down in cities like Baltimore and others across the country. And, you know, if there's, and if real estate was the tool that did that, then real estate should be the tool to help fix that. And that's what we're working on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.